Thank you, Spencer, for uh, taking point this morning with the team. Thank you guys for leading us. Um, and thanks to uh, Jason Wallace, who did an excellent job last week of unpacking chapter 11 in 1 Samuel. Um, he came close to that line of it being so good that he might not get invited back. Um, that's a, always a, a difficult thing to nail. Um, just kidding. It was really good, and I so appreciated it. In fact, he did such a good job of kind of summarizing where we had been from chapter 8 through the the story of Saul up until now that I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that uh, segue. Um, I'm going to let that stand. And if you want to see that or, or see, experience that, if you're new and you've not been following it through us with first Samuel, then, um, then we'd, I'd love to send you back to that and go listen to the beginning of last week's sermon. Um, plus he used a lot of maps and that's kind of a hobbit after my own heart. And so uh, I like the maps too, as you know, and so that's really cool. Uh, but before we get started, before we jump into this week's passage, I feel like it would be appropriate to make a quick comment. I don't know how quick it will be, but it's a comment. Um, we're about to read an account of a leader who is stepping out of a place of leadership. That's what we're, what we're about to see in chapter 12, um, is Samuel stepping out of this place of leadership. We will see that he does it well, very well. He has lived well and led well. And you wonder, would anything be more isolating than being a judge of Israel? I can only think of a couple of things, being a prophet of Israel or being a priest of Israel. And Samuel was all three of these. And yet we see him engaging in his community with what little we have of the gap of his life between the time he's a teenager and now when he is behold I am old type of thing. Um, he, he, we see him in his community eating meals with others, talking with God, visiting his hometown. Now we don't know what all those decades looked like. Did anyone know Samuel well? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they did. I don't know if they didn't. It, it doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I, for one, cannot imagine that anyone could be Samuel for a lifetime without being known and without knowing others, without friendships. The nature of a tragedy, because of the nature of a tragedy in our town this week at a sister church um, at Sylvania this week, um, we have been uh, in prayer for them and... and um, coming alongside them because of the nature of that tragedy this week. And if you don't know, you, you will, and this isn't the place to unpack. That's not my story to tell. But, um, but in, within the midst of that, because of the nature of the tragedy um, this week, many of you have kindly reached out to me um, and our staff to check on us. How are you doing? I want you to know that, that uh, your leadership board, who represent you well, uh, immediately, I mean immediately, reached out to me and our staff, and, as, and to me as a group, they reached out to me as individuals, many of them have as well, to check on me. Um, my wife's first words, I was, I was in D.C. Um, leading a group of students um, for the, most of the beginning of this week, and um, when I got home, one of my wife's, some of my wife's first words to me were how grateful she was for all of the friends that I have. The deep friendships that I have, the people who, who I can talk to and who can talk to me. Um, and obviously of my deep friendships, the first of which is her, second only to God alone. Uh, the staff, especially those who have been here the longest and who work nearest to me, are not merely co-workers. They are, as I mentioned last week, mighty men and women of valor. They are the people who God has sent along with me that I can be open with 
Um, and I am open with them. Sometimes, much to their chagrin, I am open with them. Um, th these are, I choose to be open with them about my victories and about my struggles. Um, in addition to that, when I faced um, one of the more stressful times of my life a few years ago, I asked two experienced pastors um, to be over shepherds. Uh, one of those is Dr. Bob, who is uh, in the first service, and the other one is Wayne Broderick, who's in Frisco. And I talk to them regularly. Um, last year, I started a lead pastor's luncheon, um, and we talk about the things that we face as lead pastors. Um, and this is a place where I could talk about, we could talk about these things, uh, talk about our thoughts and our feelings with people who are a little bit less likely to think that we're totally whacked for the thoughts and feelings that we sometimes experience in this very specific role uh, of lead pastor. Every job has that. Every job has all of its own special things that only other people who work in that role or who carry those burdens can fully understand. And this, has been, this is also super healthy. Um, I have said, and I hold fast to this conviction, the Christian life must never be attempted in isolation. And we're going to talk more about this uh, next week as well. But this is vital. The Christian life must never be lived in isolation. We are friends first. I'm not saying this about pastors. I'm not saying this about church staff. I'm saying this about the human race. Friendship is first. Um, it, is, it is vital to understand that. This is what I believe. All other relationships, boss, parishioner, congregation member, pastor, employee, competitor, even dad and husband are subordinate to or fail without friendship. We are friends first. Apparently, according to Scripture, I will not always be Ginger's husband. Don't fully get that, but apparently that's the case. But I will always be her friend. I will not go away for eternity. This is why this is vital. I choose to live this way. And it's why I can tell you, especially those who have reached out, I'm okay. I'm not saying that because somehow I'm okay. I'm probably not. But because of the friends, the relationship with God, and the mighty men and women of valor who God has put in my life, I can be okay. The gifts and the provisions of God are profound. There are joys at His right hand evermore. Even in the midst of suffering and struggle and stress. Um, I think this has to be, that I'm convinced of this, I believe this, I may even be wrong, I don't care. I'm sticking with it. This is the way I'm going to do it. So what I would tell you is, I thank you for checking on me and on your staff and on one another and on your friends and family members who are part of Sylvania. Do so. Keep doing it. Check on them. Pray for them. Um, and I actually want to take a moment. I've asked several of those lead pastors. I sent out something asking, encouraging them this morning to take a little bit of time from our pulpits and to pray for their pulpit. Um, to pray for their church and to pray for them this morning. So if you will, join with me, um, and we're going to pray for them. Um, Father, one of the most amazing things about you, of all the amazing things about you, one of the most amazing things about you, is there's, there's, it, that there's nothing you cannot redeem. You, behold, can make all things new. You do make all things new. We can bring you ashes, and you create beauty from that. Lord, it's been amazing to watch in a very hard week, in just these short few days, to see what you have done, to see the, the glory that you have brought yourself and the joy that you have brought even in the midst of trials, 
to see young men step up and lead one another, to comfort one another, to see families step up and pray and lead, to see counselors and pastors all over our community step up. Lord, to see you redeeming something that's tragic is just like you. So we thank you that you are that kind of a God. We all bring our difficulties and our tragedies, our, our fears and our pains, our disappointments and our despair. Lord, we bring those to you and you somehow are able to bring beauty out of that. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to do this mighty work. Lord, help us to remember the truth that these churches scattered all over this world, some in beautiful buildings like this, some in huts, some out under the rain. Lord, that these pulpits, every single one of them is yours, not ours. It's your church, not our church. It's your pulpit, not our pulpit. Nothing we could do could change the sanctification of the power of your word delivered by your people. And Lord, I pray that you will help us all to remember that, that we will continue to deconstruct our faith in one another, that we'll deconstruct our faith uh, in ourselves, even though we trust and we experience each other as amazing gifts, Lord, good gifts from you, that fundamentally you are where we place our faith, that you are where we place our trust. And I pray you'll help us to remember that day by day, every day. We pray this according to the perfect uh, sacrifice of your son, the lamb without blemish or defect, according to the shedding of his blood and the power of him, your word. Lord, through the sanctifying work of your spirit from who, by whom we have been sealed and according to your perfect knowledge and power, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. So let's connect back to the narrative. First Samuel, starting in chapter 11. I want to build up a little momentum in chapter 11 and move into uh, 12 this morning. So 1 Samuel 11, starting at verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made King uh, Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, Gilgal is a very important place in the Bible, a very important place in Israel. In fact, it's wild to me studying Gilgal to realize we don't kind of say like, of all the important places in Israel, the only two that can even compete for first place is Jerusalem and Gilgal. And yet most of us are completely ignorant of Gilgal, myself included, until diving into the Samuels how valuable and vital a place this was. Now it should have, it's where Joshua, for example, the, when the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan River, the first place they set up base camp was Gilgal. Now what's fascinating is, it's not a good choice. Um, it's not a great place to set up a defensive uh, perimeter. Nothing about this is a good place that you would want to use it, which I assume is why no one was already there. It's because no one else wanted it. And so Joshua was able to move the people there and have it be a base camp with which they moved from there to Jericho or from there to Ai or from there to wherever they went. And so, so this is a, that, that's Gilgal. It's a vital place and you will, will to unpack it, continue to unpack it because it's a very important place for Samuel and Saul as you will see. Um, now what's wild is that shouldn't surprise us. Remember back in chapter 10, 1 Samuel 10, 8, Samuel says to Saul, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, as far as it does not seem like that has happened yet, where we are in the story in verse in chapter 12, that, that this has not happened yet, which is wild because they're about to go to Gilgal, but it won't be this time. 
that they go to Gilgal. It's not this one being described. That will not happen until for another chapter or two. And so it's, it's again, we've talked about the, the challenges of the timeline in 1 Samuel. So today we're going to be introduced to the first kind of one of those challenges, which is that Samuel will tell us something that happened, and then he will go back. The next chapter will be him unpacking something in the chapter before. We'll see it very clearly um, in a couple of chapters when we have Jonathan. It's going to tell us Jonathan defeats um, a garrison of Philistines. And that's going to be just mentioned and then the next chapter is going to begin with the story of Jonathan conquering the garrison of Philistines. And it's going to feel really weird. If you just read it chronologically straight through, you're going to go like, wait, did Jonathan do that tw- twice in the same place? Like what exactly? No, and this is common in, one, it's common in Hebrew writing to do that. You'll remember, for example, in Genesis, um, in Genesis 1 and 2, that Genesis 2 is an unpacking of Genesis one. And so the, the specific parts of Genesis 1. And so that's really common, but it's really tough on us as Westerners because we, we don't like it. We don't like when people write this way. Um, it's not the way we would write it. And so we're going to have to really dig into this. I'm going to try to maintain some cohesion for us so that our brains will actually be able to process this well. But this example, way back in chapter 10, that won't happen for another, still yet another couple chapters. Um, but they're going to go down to Gilgal an, an additional time first. This is where we are, where after chapter 11, Saul had passed through, he had gotten past um, baggage gate. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the whole kind of problem of baggage gate was now in his past, that fiasco. Now he has a great victory under his belt. He has defeated uh, Nahash the snake, as you learned about last week. And now they're going to make him king, apparently again. Like this is like the third time now that Saul has been made king, and it's not the last one. Is, is this time it seems to be before the Lord, which may be special somehow. Um, and there's much rejoicing when this happened. But we're, we're going to see more. So chapter 12, we're going to see the, the honeymoon is going to last for a very short amount of time with Saul. So enjoy it while we've got it, while Saul is kind of doing well. Chapter 12, I'm going to pick up uh, in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, so they're in Gilgal. I believe, by the way, that what you're about to read, this is my opinion, not everyone agrees with this, that what you're about to read is an unpacking of what I just read from chapter 11. This is the coronation ceremony involves this speech from Samuel. So the, the, we're going to make Saul king before God. I think probably this is something that happened during that ceremony, this speech, okay? My opinion. I think it makes sense, but we'll go there. Chapter 12, verse 1, Samuel said to all of Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. Second, behold. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. So, it may be that this chapter is an unpacking of the final verses of all of that. That's what I think. Samuel declaring Saul again to be king. Now, Samuel points out to the people up in front of all of them, that he has done what they asked of him. We're going to unpack why Samuel goes into this speech, but I think this is part of it. He's saying, listen, this, with the decisions I've made, they're on you. These are what you wanted, and I did them. So, for example, isn't it interesting that he points out, behold, my sons are with you. What does that mean? What does it mean that his sons are with you? Remember what the people felt about his sons? They didn't want his sons to be the next judges because they were, in their opinion, corrupt. 
Now, we don't know if they were, but that was, that's what the people thought. They were corrupt. They took bribes, all that kind of stuff. So Samuel says, okay, fine. And he says right here, you asked me not to make them leaders. They're not. They're out there in the crowd with you. They're not up here on stage with me. They're out in the crowd with you. Okay, that's one thing you asked for. You asked for a king. Behold, the tall, handsome guy, right? The guy from head casting that, that they sent in for the king. They've sent him in. This is now the king. Great. We're going, to, we're going to go with him. He is now the anointed one. And three, you told me I was old, and I'm agreeing with you, right? You, they, you, they did the behold you are old line, and he does the behold I am old line. So we're all on the same page. I've accepted this. This is going to be Samuel's resignation letter and his retirement speech, but only as a judge, not as a prophet, not as a priest. He is still prophet and priest of Israel. He is no longer judge because there are no longer judges. Verse 3, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Now, no matter who you are, you got to admit this is gutsy, right? Imagine this. Now, I get this. He's saying the era of Samuel as your, there's a lot of things happening this. So let me show you all of them. The era of Samuel as your leader is over. I am no longer your judge. I am leaving with a clean conscience. He's going to prove it. And I think, number one, he is confident no one is going to send, raise their hand. Have I taken anything from anybody? No. Have I, have I stolen anything? Have I accepted bribes from anything? Have I done any of these things? Waiting, waiting. He doesn't think anybody's going to raise their hand because he knows. That's amazing. I mean, he's been the prophet and priest and judge of Israel for decades. And he is asking who has an offense against me that I have offended you and that I have taken something from you? Now's your chance. Bring it up. Right? Now, maybe they're afraid, but he's going to bring, maybe they're like, I'm not going to cross you. Maybe that's what's going on here, but we're going to talk about why he, he draws attention to that. But as a leader, I would also say this. I think maybe he's just making sure. <clears throat> now, this may be what haunts leaders more than anything else. Certainly those of us who are more relational type of leaders. The degree to which it haunts leaders, I admit, this may just be me. But here's the deal. I spend a lot of time hoping we're okay. Maybe, that, again, maybe that's just me. But I worry about that a lot. Like, are we okay? And here's the problem. I desperately want us to be okay. When I think we're not okay, and I know we've got to meet and talk about it not being okay, that's one of the few things that truly stresses me in my life. I, I, I don't I, I disagree with me. That's fine. Have a different plan than me. That's fine. Tell me that you want to go do something else. That's fine. Just be not okay with me. Oh man, that just gets me. And so, and so this is a, maybe this was not a big deal to Samuel, but it was me. And here's one of the things that haunts me is I know that because I'm in leadership, we're probably not okay. The truth is, there's probably stuff I've done or said on stage that you're like, I think he's picking on me. And then you've been sitting and thinking about that. There was that time I didn't know who you were, that I should have known who you were, or that time that you were out of context, and I'm like blanking, or, or something. I've done something that has hurt your feelings and disturbed you and frustrated you, and I'm, I know that I sit and live at all times knowing that there are people out there going like, yeah, I'm really, I'm really annoyed at him, to be perfectly honest, and I don't know it. 
and it just, it just crawls all over me. And this may be what he's doing. Like when I, someday when my resignation speech is, I'm going to get up and go like, all right, now's the time. <laughs> We've set aside eight hours. Just, just bring it. Like I wanted this over and done. And I do think that's part of what Samuel is doing also. Because I think Samuel is wanting to say, this is now Saul's, not mine. And I've not set him up to fail. There's not tons of oxen that he needs to replace in my name or donkeys. There's not a bunch of bad blood between me and the people that's now going to just shift over to Saul. I want you to see, even Stephen, the, the, the credit line is, is zeroed out. No one owes no one nothing. We're good. And now it's all Saul's problem. You are now Saul's problem, is I think part of what he's saying. Before I resign as judge... I don't want to leave Saul with any debt owed by me. This is great. And finally, the way he says it is this, that he is saying, I tes testify against me before the Lord and his anointed. In other words, there's two authorities here. Samuel is now recognizing the authority of the Lord, obviously, and of Saul, not so obvious. He is now deferring. This is like John the Baptist. I must decrease, he must increase. This is a beautiful picture of someone stepping out of a position of leadership gracefully and bravely, courageously. Verse 3, here I am. Testify against me, right? Okay, now, verse 4. They, here's what they say. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hands. Now he's going to call them on the carpet on this. This is it, guys. Like, if, if you're just saying it because you're afraid of me, you now have to understand. He says in verse 5, the Lord is witness against you this day. Not meaning he's, he is against you. Meaning, if you come back later and you go, oh, you know what? There was that one ox. I'm going to go, no, sir. No, sir. The Lord is witness today that you said there wasn't any. Not only the Lord, but his anointed, who will be the future king slash judge. So, he said, the Lord is witness against you this and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hands. And they said, he is witness. I don't know which one they mean. The anointed probably is what they mean. This is not only the era of Samuel that is over, but at this moment in chapter 12, um, in this verse, the era of the judges is over. Complete, kaput, it's done. The era of your leader, by the way, this is another thing I think Samuel's saying. The era of your leader not taking things from you is over. The era of, P, of your leader not taking donkeys, over. Not taking oxen, over. This guy's going to take oxen. In fact, what did he do in the last chapter? What did he threaten to do if people didn't come fight? I'm going to come kill your oxen. Yeah, it didn't take him long, did it? To start threatening people's property. Samuel is pointing to Saul's rising authority. The Lord hears you. Saul hears you. Now, then Samuel, who is not stepping down as the prophet of Israel, decides now would be a good time for a little prophetic message. And so he breaks straight into one. Now, people, you may be witness to that I am stepping down and how I'm stepping down, but you know what? The Lord has witnessed a few things too. And there's a few things else that not only me, but that you should have witnessed about the Lord. So I'm going to just remind you of some stuff, right? And he's going to start by mentioning Egypt. That's always bad. This is, this is like your mom starting a conversation with, you know I gave birth to you, right? It's like, <laughs> playing that card, right? 
It's, it's like, okay, this is, this is how it's going to go. This is, this is Samuel's, Samuel starting by saying, verse 6, the Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the kings of Moab. Not all at once, by the way. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. Verse 11, And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Now I want to tell you, some of this, some of this next little section um, I have taken from David Guzik's uh, excellent two sermons on this passage. I was already impressed because everyone I looked at, because of the nature of this chapter, everyone I looked at either combined 11 and 12, or they combined 12 and 13, because they weren't sure how to unpack 12 in a way that was all that valuable, I guess, I guess. And I was reading through 12 the first time going like, what, what is, how do I find stuff in this? And it's amazing how often that happens, and then I start digging into it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to need nine weeks, right? But here's what I love, Guzik, Guzik split chapter 12 into two sermons, and I admire that. He not only did he not just think it as a standalone, but he found so much depth in it, he needed two whole sermons to do it. So uh, he had some great stuff, and one of the points I'm about to make here, actually two points I'm going to make in the sermon, really come directly from him. It was great. First, the summary of the history from Moses to modern times, which reveals what? So if you go back and look at it, if you look, go back and look at verse 7, it says... Therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. In other words, he wants to make sure that they are witness to the righteous deeds of the Lord. Now the righteous deeds play out into a three-step cycle. I want to point out to you, this is not just the cycle of the land of Israel. This is the cycle of the human race as a group and as individuals. Number one, you call out to the Lord and the Lord rescues you. This is step one. This is the, the first righteous deed of the Lord. You call out to the Lord and the Lord rescues you. God rescuing us is a righteous deed. It is what motivates us to rescue others. He comforts us, so we comfort others. Second Corinthians. He loved us first, therefore we love others. He forgave us, therefore we forgive others. It is this truth that motivates us to have right relationships with one another. God has rescued me. Who am I to not have a healthy relationship with my brothers and sisters? Who am I? You call out to the Lord and the Lord rescues you. God's righteous deed. Number two. You live in peace and health and safety. This is a righteous deed of the Lord. It's a provision from God that we can live under these conditions. That there is a peace that passes understanding. There can even be times of turmoil and difficulty and broken relationships 
and we can still live in peace. We can live in peace, in safety. Um, we, we too often, too quickly refer to things as harm that really probably aren't. We think of things too quickly as like, oh, that's not safe or that is safe. I think we've overused those words now to where they have less meaning, not more meaning. And I think we need to recognize being safe doesn't mean you feel great. Being, being at peace doesn't mean you're not disappointed or you're not even as sometimes anxious. Those are, those are normal things to feel, but we live in this condition of peace and safety and health in the Lord. This is a righteous deed of the Lord. That's two. And three, you rebel and reject and ignore and God sells you into the hands of an accuser to discipline you. This church is also a righteous deed of the Lord. <clears throat> this is clearly to train people to grow them up. We never like being disciplined. Um, if you were in sports and you had one of those coaches who made you want run wind sprints until you puked your guts out and you hated him right up until you caught an interception and you had to run it 100 yards to, win a touch, to get a touchdown, and then all of a sudden you're super grateful for all those wind sprints, right? This is, the, this is the, 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 I remember when we did lifeguard training, how difficult it was. At some point you have to carry a brick in both hands and swim at the same time. And boy, until you figure out how to do that, you half drown for like 30 minutes trying to figure this out. And you are so mad at the coach for making you do this. You're like, this is a dumb rule. Why would I have to do this? This is ridiculous. I don't understand how. And then one day you have to pull a kid out of a pool and you're so grateful for them teaching you how to carry a brick across a swimming pool. That is discipline. Punishment is just meeting out pain. Discipline is about putting people on the right path. That's the goal. The goal is not just to meet out pain. It is to put someone on the right path. God's relationship to his people is always discipline. It's always about getting them on the right path. It doesn't mean it's fun. And it's not fun. It's not fun to be sold into the slavery to an accuser in order to get you on the right path. But he does it. So, now I'd also have to comment once on uh, one other thing, some of, because some of you have a different word in verse 11, depending on your translation. And I'm really surprised the ESV made the decision it did. The Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak. Now, uh, the, the, many of your Bibles will have the word, a, name, a different name there. Bedan will be the name, B-E-D-A-N. And Jephthah and Samuel delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Jerubbabel is Gideon. That's just another one of the names of Gideon. Uh, Bedan may be someone else's other name. Bedan is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Um, the ESV made the decision to say this is Barak, but it is very clearly in the Hebrew not Barak. It is Bedan. They're not the same name. Um, now, it is similar to Barak, but it's not the same. And it may be Barak. Who is it? Some say it's, it's actually Barak, the man who fought with Deborah. Okay? Some say it's Samson, because Bedan sounds a lot like the son of Dan, which Samson would have been. Others say, uh, who cares? In fact, that's a really common one, even in the commentaries. Like, we don't care. Here's what I say. This is why I want to comment on this, because I think it's a good lesson. God has used thousands of deliverers in the lives of his people. The vast majority of them have gone unnamed. The vast majority of them aren't in the Bible. Bedan may be a name for someone who we know, but Bedan may just be one of those thousands of people who delivered, who delivered God's people and who was not, his story was never told. Here, in eternity, we can get Bedan's story maybe. 
Most of them go unnamed. Praise God for all the deliverers in our lives that he has sent our way of whom we are completely ignorant and clueless. How many of them are there? Think about how many of them we, how many times we have been that person. If we live out our faith, if we live out our faith, if we are kind, if we are forgiving, if we are gentle, if we are patient, we change people's day just by living out those fruit of the Spirit. And we may be a deliverer for somebody in a really bad day, and we have no way of knowing it, but our kind word, our encouragement, our prayer, our whatever changes them. We act as a deliverer, and they have no idea who we are, and they won't until heaven. I actually do agree with some that the, what, a big part of what heaven will be is God bringing people up to you and you're like, oh, hey, meet so-and-so. They changed your life. You've never met them before, but your life would have been totally different without this person. What a cool conversations those are going to be forever. There are a lot of deliverers. This was, um, Samuel lists four of the dozen that we know, and by the way, he includes himself in the list. I love that. I don't know if this was a laugh line in the speech. Um, I know we all think, we assume that, that, uh, that when pe the Bible people never made jokes and, and never said funny things in their talks and stuff like this, but I could totally imagine this being a laugh line for Samuel. Samuel going like, listen, you people can be so terrible that God has to send some wonderful, amazing, godly, righteous people to rescue you sometimes. I mean, you remember Jephthah, who by the way was a robber king. <laughs> um, you remember Jerubbabel, Gideon. You remember Bedan, for sure. You remember, um, man, the greatest of all the judges. Samuel. Like, I can see that being like a, a me. And so I can see that being a good, and them appreciating that. But Guzik in his sermon, this was the best point in his two sermons I thought. And this, this hit home for me really well. When you can list a whole bunch of deliverers, here's what that means. It means apparently you need a whole lot of delivering. <laughs> There's something wrong if you need a whole lot of delivering. There's something going on in your life. If you're like, yeah, I go down to the beach. I know all the lifeguards by name. Like, I know them all. They've all pulled me out one time or another of the, of the surf. Like, it's been great. That's great that God has sent all these lifeguards to deliver you. But you know what the lifeguards are saying, right? They're like, please, please stay out of the water. Just, just stop doing this thing that we keep having to come rescue over. They can imagine God saying that. Listen, there's a cycle here. There's a pattern here. I just assume you stay off the part of the pattern that requires me to send yet another deliverer. But it is amazing that God in his faithfulness sends yet another deliverer. Stop doing the things that make you need to be delivered so much. Now, also this, I have to comment. As a Christian, how cool that at the fundamental level, at the right relationship with God level, we don't need any more deliverers. We don't need another deliverer. We don't need someone to come every year and pay for our sins. We had someone who did that. They're responsible for that. Let me quote from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Listen, though we may still be disciplined, we will not be destroyed. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, took all of God's just wrath on himself. He took all of the sins and in his death declared emancipation for us all. It is, to quote him, finished. Good. Got one. I, I, I don't, I'm not one of those pastors who calls for a lot of amens. I figure that's your deal. Um, 
But this is one of those that I feel like I'd be out of line not saying like, this is, this is an amen line. So let's try this again. All right, so he took, Jesus the anointed one took all of God's just wrath on himself. He took all of the sins and in his death declared emancipation for us all to quote him, it is finished. Amen. That's right. Verse 12, do that as much as you want, by the way, that's allowed. And when you saw that Nahash the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now remember how I mentioned the timeline problem. Here's another one. Because the way we've read it up till now, they wanted a king and then Nahash started creating problems. But Samuel is implying that Nahash was already creating problems and that's part of why they wanted a king. So which is the truth? Well, it may be that they knew Nahash was causing problems, that Nahash was sharpening his blades, and since his name means snake, his fangs, and getting ready to go to war, and they knew he was coming, and that it turns out that it was maybe less about the fact that they didn't like Samuel's sons, and more that they were worried about Nahash, and they wanted someone to fight Nahash. Now, here's what's wild. If this is true, if the truth is that Nahash was already starting to move against Israel before they demanded a king, then what Jason said last week, that they do not seek the Lord, is even more damning. They see this coming and they want a war chief king like other nations. And here's what stood out to me. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe they didn't want a Samson. Maybe they wanted a Nahash. They wanted their own Nahash like others. They wanted their own snake to fight against the other snake. If I may, I want to make one tiny political statement here. Let us be weary in any position of leadership, politically, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, anywhere. Let us be very careful let us be wary of saying that we need to fight snakes with snakes when it comes to the character of our leaders. God forbid that we ever say, and this applies equally no matter which side of whatever aisle you're on, snakes have a nasty habit of biting everyone, eventually. They have a nasty habit of turning on anyone. Anyone they feel threatened by, they lash out. Anyone they want to threaten, they lash out. If you don't believe me, you can ask Lori Redfern about the nature of snakes when it comes to this. I don't know if she's here, maybe too soon to talk about that. It's only been like a decade. Um, but it's a great story. We need God to be our king. We do not need our very own Nahash at all. Please, please do not put the Nahash in you on the throne either. This is the tyrant in us the snake in us. This is actually kind of weirdly, literally true in the therapeutic world. The part of biologically, there's a part of our brain called the limbic system that is essentially the same as a snake's brain. And this is something when we flood, when we, when we look to, when we, when we turn ourselves over to that part of our flesh, that we turn very snake-like very quickly. And God protect us from the snake in each of us as well. <clears throat> the Nahash in us. Verse 13, now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So how does having a king change the cycle? You're right. It doesn't. God is telling them, okay, good. You've got your king. Yay for you. It changes nothing. Not a thing. If you obey me, I will bring you blessings and safety and peace. And if you don't, I will sell you to your accusers along with your king. Bummer. If you obey and do not rebel, he will bless you. If you stick with the pattern, then having a king will not change that. God will just face down you and your king together. It's not like your king, your merely human king, is going to somehow stand between you and God. It's not going to work. You rebel against God, and no mere king is going to save you. I've got to tell you, I wrote that line in the sermon. Rebel against God and no mere king is going to save you. And I realized I needed to put a second part to the sentence, which is no merely human king, that is. No merely human king. There is a king who will step in and who has taken God's wrath and who has taken the punishment for our repeated return to that cycle on himself. We talked about him a few minutes ago, Jesus, the anointed one. Here we have in, in, in verse 16, now stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you will know and see <clears throat> that your wickedness is great, but you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So again, he's not letting them off the hook on this whole king thing. Now what does this mean that he asks about the wheat harvest? Well, let me quickly show this to you. We've got, I've got some pictures this is the time, so the time of the year we go to Israel as a church is in June, which is during the wheat harvest, okay? So this is a picture from that time of the year. Got another one. There's another one from that time of the year. Another one. There you go. What did you notice? Okay, good. But did you notice the sky? Go back and show it again. I mean nothing. It is, it is crystal blue and typically cloudless all day. Now, doesn't mean it never rains during that time period, and it doesn't mean there's never any clouds in the sky. But just scanning through photos, which I have lots of from that time, from, from while we're there, it was amazing to me how many of them look like these. It is cloudless and blue. And when you're an agrarian culture, this would be, this would speak loudly to you. See a cloud in the sky? No, because you know what season it is. You know what part of the cycle we're in. This is how this works. Especially the thought that it would rain or have, have clouds in the sky would be strange, exceptional, but to storm would be freakish. He says, I don't think you get this, so I want you to remember that the God we're talking about following is real. They've already referred to this as Samuel's God, not theirs. And he wants him, them to know, no, this is the God. And this is his message, and this would speak clearly. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your service to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we've added all our sins, this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Yep, he was right. They didn't get it. They weren't understanding it. But a little thunder and lightning, a little storm in the wrong time of the year, and now they realize we have a huge problem. We ask for forgiveness, then asking for a king. Beg for us that God will forgive us rather than kill us. The people respond suddenly to a God they realize is very real. This isn't a game. We've got a new king. Yippee. The question is now, will you and your king obey? Verse 20, Samuel says to the people, do not be afraid. Classic. 
You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Yep, you've done this thing. No sugarcoating here. You blew it. You've rebelled against God. You have sinned against the Lord. And here's the deal. If everything depended on you, you should be afraid. Listen, if your relationship with God depended on you, you should walk around terrified all the time. That's the version of Christianity that I had early on in my life. That if I mess this up, God's done with me, I'm lost again, and it was constantly on my shoulders to maintain a relationship with God. And it was terrifying. It is terrifying, and it should be terrifying. Then how does Samuel start the next sentence with, no, 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 don't be afraid. I mean, yeah, just thundered and lightning in the wrong time of the year, just had a storm in the wrong, but you shouldn't be afraid. Why not? Because God has not changed. Hear it again. Listen and obey. You are his people. You obey your mother because she's your mother. She chose you. She adopted you. It pleased her to make you her very own. If you do not obey, she will discipline you. She may start that conversation with, I gave birth to you or I adopted you. But she will not disown you. Could she forget the child that she held so close? Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your messengers. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The peace that comes from knowing you have been chosen by a God who does not forsake those he chooses. If him forsaking us was dependent upon us, we should live in constant terror. When we recognize that the foundation of our relationship is dependent upon him who never forsakes those he has chosen, we can live with peace. So we live right now in the present seeking to follow him. We don't chase the empty things that are empty in the future. We don't dwell on the things of the past. We look, we learn, and we live in that. We plan for the future, but we don't live there. We don't dwell there. We dwell here daily seeking to flatten out that human cycle. To stay there in obedience and living in the intimacy with him. And the goal is that this addiction cycle that we have as the human race, that we spread it out, and that eventually it flattens out long enough that we die before we make the curve again. Regardless of where we die in that cycle, he has chosen us. And if you have accepted the free gift of being chosen, then you're safe and secure in a way no one else could understand. If you will, stand with me. This conversation today about the kind of God who chooses, if you've never put your faith in that God, I would love to encourage you, please come pray with us. Please come talk with us. Find someone in the room who you know knows Jesus and talk to them. That's one. Today can be the day of salvation. Number two, if you realize I'm not living this way, I mean, I may be coming to youth group, I may be coming to church, I may be an elder or deacon, I may be a leader, I may be a Sunday school teacher, I may be whatever, but the truth is, I don't live this way. I am living in rebellion. There are things in my life that I'm like, God, keep your hands off of that, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm living in rebellion of that. I have broken relationships that I'm not owning up to, that I'm not dealing with. Maybe now is the time to come 
and repent. Notice that Jesus didn't say, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, hey, you know what? I've come into the world, and you guys are really kind of okay. No, he said, repent. Turn. Change. Switch where you are. And that's what we're being called to do, all of us. Um, If you've already been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join um, our family here at South Spring, we would love for you to do that this morning as well. Um, Respond however the Lord leads you. Let me close with this passage. Romans 8, starting verse 18. It's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen. So you can kill the screen. Romans 8, listen to the words of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, meaning the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The very words of God.